Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Mark DeSantis, CEO of Bloomfield, a Pittsburgh-based ag tech startup that's raised $8.5 million in funding. Mark, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you. Appreciate being on your program. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what's being built over there, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. I guess you could say I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've been doing this for 17 years. I'm on my fourth startup, and it's my third AI startup. I'm also an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon, an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship in the College of Engineering. So I not only live this stuff, I teach it as well. Amazing. And would 10-year-old Mark be surprised that you're CEO of an ag tech startup today? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say even 20-year-old Mark would have been surprised. I never imagined that I would be into farming. And I, you know, it's not a subject that had a a lot of interest for me when I was younger. And throughout my life, I always thought of it as, you know, frankly, a little boring until I actually looked at it. And then I discovered this is one of the most interesting worlds to be in. And I think young people are out there. I want to make a recommendation. You want to get into the future of technology and get into agriculture because that's where it is. And there's a reason for that. And it's the fact that the world's population is growing 40% in the next 30 years. We're going to add more people to the world than uh, we have in the last 10,000 years. And they all need to be fed and there's fewer resources to do it. So if you want to talk about a challenge, that's a challenge. So it's an exciting world to be in and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. Privilege, really. Nice. That's super interesting. Now, I'd love to talk a little bit about your background with AI. So what year was that first AI startup? Oh, yeah. So I did, my first AI company was a company called Mobile Fusion, and it was 2007. So this is when AI really didn't work, but it sort of kind of worked, not really. Maybe, sometimes. So we developed technology through Carnegie Mellon in the Robotics Institute. What we developed was a small ball, really, about a little bit bigger than a softball, and it was packed with sensors. And we had a friend who was in Iraq, and sadly, he was killed. And he was going into a building, and in that room that he was going into, there was somebody in there, and and he lost his life. Had he known that there was somebody essentially around the corner or behind the door, it might have saved his life. And so we developed a device it was a ball it was packed with sensors and you would toss it into what the military called a denied area any place it was either too dangerous to put a human or you couldn't fit somebody in there and this ball packed with sensors would use machine learning and it would roughly identify what it saw so it would roll around and then sweep the room for it depends on what sensor cluster was on the device you could sort of mix and match sensor clusters so we would put audio and video, infrared, we even had a seismic sensor, you could sniff. And all those things would sort of soak up what was around it in a radius of about 15, 20 feet. And then the operator would be looking at a device that would tell them, you know, bad guy 
behind the couch, or that's a T90 tank, or whatever it might be. And uh, we developed this for the military, for different branches. In other words, to test it in the Marine Corps, U.S. Navy, uh, even an intel agency. And um, it sort of worked, Brett, kind of. <laughs> but not enough for people's lives to depend on what the machine was saying. But it taught me the potential of AI. And that, at that time, machine learning, 2006, 2007, still kind of exotic. And uh, I happened to be fortunate in that I had some of the best machine learning engineers in the world because we were you know, connected to Carnegie Mellon. But that first exposure really convinced me that, uh, hey, this technology is going to be game-changing. My next company was a company called Quantera that used machine learning to predict price changes in power markets. And essentially, it's the largest commodity market in the world, the U.S. power market. And so this would require three programs to explain how power markets work, Brett. So I'm going to give you the really short version because it's complicated, but effectively power is bought and sold every day, every minute of every day, continuously across the United States. And those power prices are, there's the, what's called the real-time price and the, the one-day forward price. And that balances the supply and demand of electricity in, a, in an economical way. Well, what if you had machine learning and you could predict with some probability what the day ahead and real-time prices might be at a given time? And this is particularly important for some suppliers, like in our case, wind farms, who are struggling with what they call participating in the market. So I have a wind farm. I'm going to sell my electricity today. What should I sell it for? Versus for most wind farms, they sell it, they sell it for the whole year's fixed price. They don't have to worry about what the price today is. Many of them are having to now participate in the market because their power purchase agreements were coming to an end. And now they had to know what the price is with some reliability, what it's going to be tomorrow. And so we predicted that for them. And so we did reasonably well in General Electric when they had a venture fund invested in our company, a substantial amount of money because they were producing generators. One quarter of all of the generation in the world is probably on a GE generator. So that was my second experience. So using machine learning to do price prediction in power markets, that was exciting. And the next one really was the company that I was describing with respect to road surfaces and assessing, you know, we had a, uh, it was a company called Robotics. It was acquired by Michelin and we would use deep learning spun out of Carnegie Mellon to assess road surfaces. So we grew the company to a couple hundred cities around the world. Uh, every cities have public works departments. So you have to manage the road. And if you think of mostly streets are asphalt, some concrete, and people who are roadway engineers, people who work in the public works departments of cities, towns, states, drive around, look at the road surface and look for patterns, about three or four dozen patterns that show up in mostly asphalt. They go by names of lateral cracks and even alligator cracks. They look like the back of an alligator. You've probably seen that on your streets at home. And all of those things, all of those surface features tell roadway engineers what treatments they need to do to the road to preserve the road so you don't have potholes. 
our AI would use video from a cell phone camera in a windshield. It would take that video in the cloud, isolate the road surface, and then look for those and identify those features and then generate a map for the city. And so the city would know to the meter what the condition of the road surface is, the rating of that particular part of the surface, and it was in digital form. They could click through. The mayor of Savannah, Georgia could click through any part of the entire 700-mile, centerline-mile road network of Savannah, and they could see the rating per foot. They could even click and see a pothole in a particular part of the city so they would know exactly the condition of the roads, all captured with a cell phone, passively in a uh, street sweeper. Wow. Uh, so pretty cool. And then that sort of led me to this company that I'm with now, Bloomfield, where if you think of the analogy, the, analogously what we did for road surfaces, imagine you did that for specialty crops. So my uh, when I was a little kid, my grandfather had about a one-acre garden in his backyard. My Italian immigrant grandfather would walk around and, you know, he's always putzing around, playing with the fruits and vegetables, seeing the condition of the tomatoes, and he was always doing something to the plants to try to get the most from his, his one-acre farm. Well, that routine is repeated for the world's $1.4 trillion worth of apples, peaches, tomatoes, and fruits, vegetables, other specialty crops. It's similar treatment is done for the world's row crops, uh, wheat, rice, and corn. But in our world, fruits and vegetables, the one we inhabit, it's pretty important routine. So if I may, uh, let's just take a viticulturalist or a, take your average vineyard. There's somebody who's highly trained, a viticulturalist or viniculturalist. They are walking among the grapes, among the vines. They're looking at different things. They're looking at, right about now, they're looking at something called stand count, bud break. These are the very, very beginnings of what will ultimately be leaves, grapes, what have you. They're counting. They're looking at a specific vine and they're counting them. They're sizing them. They're looking at their color. A month from now, they'll be looking at something that's a little bit more leafy. Again, they'll be uh, later, they'll be looking at actual berries, the early version of those berries, and ultimately grapes. And then those grapes will be harvested. Continuously inspecting those crops. And that routine, as I say, happens for not just grapes, but oranges, bananas, tomatoes, cannabis, you name it. Well, what if you could take AI and imaging, just as we did for my previous company, and apply that AI and imaging and tell the grower exactly the condition of each and every plant? And you would do it, not only telling the condition of the plant, you would geolocate every plant. And the difference would be not just that you're doing what that viticulturalist and viticulturalist can do, but you're doing it at scale. So some of our customers, we have about 15, 16 vineyards now and three continents, as well as uh, blueberry grows. You not only, a typical viticulturalist can inspect about 150 vines in a day. It's about a tenth of an acre. Unfortunately, there aren't many of these viticulturalists as well. So it's not only a limited selection of plants you can inspect, there's a limited number of people who can do it. What if I could take a camera, put it on an ATV or a tractor, and while that tractor ATV is doing something else, it's imaging not... 150 vines in a day, a tenth of an acre, but it's imaging 20,000 vines in a day and doing it passively and getting even more detail about the plant and geolocating every plant and doing it repeatedly through the year. Now I got something. Well, that's what we do. We do that for growers around the world. We put cameras on vehicles, whatever the customer has. 
those cameras are built by us, but the more importantly, the AI that sits in the cloud that analyzes it was built by us. And it images all of those plants, and then it tells the grower the condition of those plants, everything from leaf density to grape count, size, and color. Whatever you are looking for, we're seeing and digitalizing it at the plant level. I could, you know, for those who are in ag, know this, but some interesting things about ag, particularly for AI folks. Anybody who's a regular reader of Wired Magazine probably this year saw the issue that had no less than John Deere, a 160-year-old tractor company, on the cover of Wired saying this is one of the leading AI companies in the world. And why is that? Well, the CEO of John Deere was quoted recently, a guy named John May, as saying that the world, and he's aware of a very important factoid that as I said earlier about the world population increasing by 40%, adding billions, several billion people to the world's population in the next 30 years, you got to feed those folks and you don't have any more arable land. You're actually going to have less fertilizer and water available to just to make it even more difficult. And John May, the CEO of John Deere said up to now, most farmers have managed their farms to the acre. Now they're going to manage to the plant. That means that every plant, which has its own unique genetic profile, and as a consequence, its own capability to produce food and energy and calories, will now be managed separately. And that unique capability will be identified and exploited. Imagine if we all had tutors, how much we would have done in school. Certainly that would have helped me uh, (laughs) teaching classrooms because it's scalable. In the same vein, farmers grow and they farm to the acre. What if I could know the condition of every vine, tree, or bush, and I could uniquely identify its capability and uniquely treat it to maximize its potential? Well, you can do that now, and that's one of the things we bring. And do you see that farmers are open to new and emerging technology like this? Are they quick to adopt? You know, it's funny, the time in our history, somewhere upwards of 40% of the population of the United States was engaged in agriculture. It's less than 1.2% and shrinking. So we're producing this food with a very small population of folks where the average age of people in farming is as close to 60. And, you know, it's pushing mid fifties. So farming is a challenge right now, given the limited resource base to draw from. So farmers know the challenge they're facing and they are more than ready to embrace technology. Now, farmers are a lot like the folks that we worked with in the military. You give me a tool and I take it into a dirty, dusty, difficult environment. It better work because if it doesn't work, I'm never going to try it again. So whatever you bring to a farmer, it has to work. But that farmer will embrace technology if it gives them an advantage, if it gives them a labor savings, if it makes them more efficient, and above all, if it makes them more effective as a farmer. In other words, increase that yield, quality, and size, and consistency. They will embrace it completely. It doesn't matter how exotic it is. Wow, that's fascinating. And I'm ignorantly thinking this because I'm you know, not from this industry and I haven't spent a lot of time in this industry, but from my you know outside view, I would just picture a farmer not being quick to embrace new technology. And you just kind of picture you know, like 
Farmer John and his overalls, you know, not yep. liking technology, which is, you know, a very unfair stereotype. But yep. that's like what I think a lot of people would would think. So that's fascinating that they're they're quick to embrace. And I, I like that parallel with the military of if they embrace it, it better work because they're it's high stakes, right? They can't bring these tools and have them not work. It just doesn't it's not an option. You bet. And let me tell you, I'll give you my world of kind of viticulture and, you know, winemaking. I imagine we have customers up and down the West Coast and we actually have an office in uh, St. Helena, right in this middle of Napa. And we have a team of folks in California. And we also have uh, a team in uh, Dijon, France, where we have customers across France. And I always imagined that in viticulture, you know, particularly in Northern California, you would go to a vineyard and it'd have, you know, you've got Silicon Valley right down the street and you're, you know, sure it's fully kitted out with all this technology. And then I imagine going to France, you know, it's old world. I half expected to see people stepping on grapes, you know, old world artisanal kind of farming. It's the opposite. <laughs> The farming that I've seen in California is, to a large extent, for smaller vintners, it's very artisanal. They, it's very old world, and I mean that in, the, in a positive sense. I mean, mm-hmm. they embraced a lot of the techniques that you know get those results that allow you to have that two thousand dollar bottle of wine. Interestingly, in France, it's science and technology. They embrace completely science and technology in ways that really are extraordinary. And I think to some extent, it's because of sheer scale of the industry in Europe. A little known fact, half of the world's wine comes from Spain, France, and Italy. A fraction of that comes from California. So when that's your industry, you're, you're going to be spending money. You're going to be wanting the best technology you can get your hands on. And that's, that was probably one of the more interesting things. And for the customers then... What's actually being sent to them? Is it a camera system that they can mount onto the vehicles or what's the physical thing that's being sent? Yeah. And for those interested, it's just bloomfield.ai and you can see some video of our camera tech working and you essentially, a camera about the size of a, a small toaster, it has two lenses. So we're duplicating human vision so we can see depth and that camera also has its own light source. And so when you image, it's just riding on uh, any kind of vehicle. We, you know, one of our investors is actually Kubota, one of the largest tractor manufacturers in the world. We have a little kit that comes in a Pelican case. We send that Pelican case as the camera, the little gear to attach it to whatever kind of vehicle you have. You hit the on button, go within 40 minutes, you're collecting data. You don't have to drive in any special way. Each lens is capturing about 15 30 frames a second, and then it's flashing. You could do this at 3 a.m., high noon, and it's imaging everything, geolocating everything, and then that data goes up to the cloud, and that's where deep learning or neural net deep learning then takes all of those images, combines them. It's, It's a little more complicated. It's not so much a single image that it's using. It's using multiple images combined. Mm-hmm. And it's then at the pixel level looking for patterns that are indicative or predictive of features that a particular bitter culturalist would look for. So, for example, simply put, we can tell a grower that there's mold on that grape, on that cluster, on that vine. 
So when you have the, what I call the atomic level knowledge of the farm, if you equate a kind of a plant with an atom, we have subatomic knowledge. We actually know features of the plant geolocated. And then where this gets really interesting, Brett, is if for those who are interested in this topic, I would encourage you to look up something called plant digitalization. Okay. And this is a concept that, uh, uh, most recently, a company called Mineral, which is one of the alphabet, recently created alphabet companies, does something similar to what we do. Their approach, our approach, John Deere's approach, others, is to take a plant and turn it into a digital artifact at the pixel level and then repeatedly inspect that plant for as long as it's alive. So a typical vine might exist for 20 years. You're going to create that vine and you're going to turn it into a digital artifact. You're going to repeatedly inspect it so that you're going to see its evolution, not just through a season, but for as long as it's live. Wow. And you're going to look at everything on that plan. And that is how that plant will be managed through that digital artifact. It'll, it's how it will receive irrigation. It's how it will receive treatments like deleafing. It's how it will receive know when to harvest. It's how the yield prediction will be generated. It's how the contract between the grower and the buyer will be determined. It's how the insurance will be determined for that farmer. And I'll take it one step further, and this will blow your mind. So one of our customers works with a very prominent grocery store chain, people have heard of, and that grocery store chain said to one of our customers, look, You've been selling us these products now and saying they're organic for a long time. And we're not sure that's true. So we want you to prove it. And also we want to be able to give our customers visibility into their crops, into the things they buy. Unprecedented visibility. So the way this will work is you and I, Brett, will go, you know, we'll be able to buy a, a bag of apples and there'll be a QR code. And we'll mouse over that, you know, we'll put our phone over that QR code. And that will tell us which tree those apples came from. And everything about that tree, for as long as that tree has been alive, all the treatments that have been applied to that tree where these apples came from, not the orchard, not the type of tree, but literally the tree that these apples came from and everything about the history of that tree. That will be true of every fruit and vegetable you buy at some point in the not too distant future. Now, you'll pay a premium for that. Well, we now can do that because we're imaging that plant. We know its location. We know its productivity. And the grower also knows what's been done to it. That is just one feature of the idea of plant digitalization. Well, that's a relief to hear. I have a, uh, a girlfriend, or I should say fiance, who loves to buy organic. So everything in our household is organic. And I always wonder who's fact-checking this and who's verifying that this is real and that, you know, we're not just paying twice as much for the same exact right. thing. So that sounds like that's the ultimate level of transparency then, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I would call extreme transparency. <laughs> nice. I love that. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. 
And I'd love to ask a little bit about the reports that come from the actual camera. So yeah, what right. does that look like then if you're, you know, the, the farmer and running this, what type of report are you getting? And then yeah. how do you ensure that that's like actionable and they're not just overwhelmed? Like what if you run this and it comes back and it says, okay, there's, I don't know, a million grapes that need to be fixed or, you know, taken out. Like yeah. what does that look like? Yeah. So essentially they have a dashboard. And the dashboard is live. So I'll give you an example. We are now collecting data. The growers, typically the growers will do that. They will strap that camera and, you know, a number of our growers have multiple cameras. And so they might send this. We recently, um, anybody would go to my LinkedIn profile would see a recently posted video of uh, one of our customers, Gloria Ferrer, a vineyard in Sonoma. And... It would show a sprayer spraying the vines, but that sprayer also had a camera. So while it's doing other work, it's imaging all those plants. Within eight hours of imaging, the grower will go to a portal, a website, where their entire farm down to the plant has been imaged, and they can start at any level of abstraction. For example, Brett, they could say, okay... For this ranch, this part of the farm, maybe it's 10 acres, I see a heat map. That heat map can show me any number of things, shoot counts, uh, shoot density at this time, stand count. At a later time, it might look at leaf density or grape count, grape color, disease, infestation to the plant. But I want to know more. And I've seen a particular area of those 10 acres where I want to drill down. I click down and I'm actually looking at a particular row. And this row is particularly productive. Our data is showing that this row is outproducing any other row in the entire vineyard. But you know, I'm even more curious as to what that looks like. So I decide to click down all the way to one of the vines that's in that row that's outproducing all the other rows. Now, there are different reasons I might want to have that level of detail, and that's where you get into the you know, sort of what I call the recipe that that particular farmer has as to how they grow their grapes. But the point is, is I now do this on a continuous basis. So that same row, that same 10 acres, that entire vineyard is going to be scanned again at a later time, perhaps as soon as two or three weeks from now. And that farmer will now have data that down to the plant and they can see the changes in the plant at any level of abstraction. Now, maybe they don't want to look, maybe they just want to uh, generate recommendations. Well, in that case, they may say, show me all of those vines with leaf density above our maximum threshold. Leaf density is such that there's too many leaves, so that's reducing the amount of sunlight, sun exposure. So what happens is the grower will actually go through the vineyard and remove some of the leaves. There's a variety of treatments like that where they're manually going in and doing things to the vines beyond just irrigation and pesticide and what have you. And so all of those require inspection. Well, they may just say, show me all the vines with leaf densities above the threshold. It shows them all the vines, and then they know where to deploy the labor. They know specifically where to go to treat specifically which vines. The list of ways that the specificity and detail of that information is used by the grower is a long list. But essentially what it does is it gives the grower more control. If I know to the plant what's going on, 
I know what I need to do exactly and precisely to each vine to get the maximum performance. Performance being the quality of the yield, the size of the yield, and importantly, the consistency of the yield. You know, consistency is an important part of farming now. Previously, it was just, hey, I'm going to sell everything I grow, and there it is. But that's not how the world works now. The world works in the way that we want our apples of a certain size, of a certain color. We like our peppers to be of a certain size, a certain color, a certain firmness, certain density. And if they're not inside that spec, Whole Foods can't sell them. So we want to make sure that all of our crops are not only of a certain quality yield, certain size, a certain consistency, and that requires continuous inspection. And that inspection then generates treatments to ensure that happens. If I know the condition of every plant on a continuous basis, every single detail of that plant, I know how to deploy my limited labor, my limited resources during the year to ensure that quality, size, and consistency. Essentially, you're taking a farm and you're turning it into a food factory. You're making it perform. You're bringing, in a sense, engineering principles to that farm to get the most results from those crops. And what's your journey like to learn a new industry? Because yeah, as you're saying there at the start, this isn't where you come from. You, know, you didn't yeah. live on a farm and you spend 30 years farming and then you know, start this. So what does that process look like? And how do you become such an expert? Because as you're talking through, yeah. you're, you're hurting my brain as I'm trying to understand uh, <laughs> and learn this new industry. So what's your process for learning yeah. a new industry when you move yeah. into it? That's a good question. That's a great question because I think that's where where a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, I think people that are drawn to entrepreneurship, Brett, are just naturally curious people. I think there are people who classically know a good bit about a good many things. You know, there are people that perhaps maybe get bored easily and they're always curious about the next thing. And I think when you go into a new industry, there are some entrepreneurs that just love the notion that they're going to learn something new. And I would say to any entrepreneur out there that you not only have to know the problem you're trying to solve, you have to love that problem. And I think that would be my biggest recommendation to any entrepreneurs listening. You not only have to know the problem as uh, Steve Blank at Stanford, who teaches the market discovery, he says, look, you got to wisely, thoughtfully says, you really have to know the problem. You have to have a PhD in the problem and you can get away with a bachelor's degree and the solution, but you also have to love the problem. You have to really find that to be a really interesting thing, a really interesting puzzle, and all of the things connected to that problem. And that's really start thinking about the industry, where the industry's going, what's the context for this problem? And when you are curious about that and you're drawn to that, you're more likely to succeed, in my humble opinion. For me, I probably orient myself towards problems that are, as a friend of mine, a venture capitalist said, the big and boring, mm-hmm. the big and boring problems, the problems like road maintenance, mm-hmm. or power markets and agriculture. And I think what is most compelling for me is being able to take sophisticated, very powerful, even a little bit exotic technology and apply them to big, boring, mundane problems. And to me, that's fascinating. You know, my first part of my career, I worked for the federal government in different capacities. And that public service kind of uh, notion 
that drove me then sort of motivates me now, but as an entrepreneur, that I feel like I can do good by going at it in these big kind of boring problems that need solutions and try to bring some fancy kit to solve it. You know, speaking for myself, and I'm sure the same for the audience listening in, I think they're probably a little bit jealous of you because your market discovery and research probably involved going to Napa, going to France, <laughs> getting to hang out at these vineyards and you're just research, just, you know, talking to customers, potential customers, trying to learn. So I feel like that was probably a fun experience. Yeah, I have a funny story very real quick. I found myself in Bordeaux. We have customers in Bordeaux. And I met uh, one of our growers, and they grow a um, very fancy vineyard. And I, I had a chance to, the end of the tour, again, a customer, you know, they, of course, they open a bottle of wine, and I'm sitting there saying, wow, you know, it's incredible. Well, I had to get on an airplane. I had to fly to Napa and meet another customer. And sure enough, it's dusk, it's in Napa, they're opening a bottle of their famous rosé. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I think of all the startup effort that I put in from opening an office in a first floor of an apartment, you know, building your own furniture, I thought I've come a long way now <laughs> of my journey of entrepreneurship. And I think to myself, well, you know, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to go to Napa. Somebody's got to go to Bordeaux. So I love that. That's <laughs> so funny. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this book, but I read it a couple of months ago. It's called The Outsiders. And I, I heard Bill Ackman talking about it. And uh, I like Bill Ackman. So anything he says to read, I, I read. And that kind of reminds me of you. Uh, it seems like you've been an outsider in yeah. all of these different companies and, and all of these different industries. And yeah. I'm guessing that's by design. So do you do you like being the outsider? Do you feel that you come in yeah. with an advantage and that, that fresh perspective? Yeah, I guess maybe it's not so much an advantage, but I think it is a case of, you know, not coming with sort of biases. Now, I will say this. There are days when I wish I wasn't an outsider because there's so many basic things I just don't know and could never know in, you know, three or four years being in an industry. But I will say that for those who are, again, considering entrepreneurship, that you shouldn't be intimidated by a lack of experience in a given industry because you're not so much trying to understand an industry as you're trying to understand a problem within an industry. And being very specific in your knowledge about the problem is going to help you overcome that lack of direct experience in a given industry. You know, it's funny. I've been in the military space, power markets, infrastructure, and now agriculture. And I always hear this. People say, well, you know, Mark, we're different. This market's different. And they're right. It is. But it's not different in every way. It's different in some ways. And if you know the problem you're trying to solve, you actually find similarities between problems you maybe solved previously and the one you're looking at now. It's just a different industry. And I think that, you know, one of the other things I would say is respect the industry and respect that people who know it. That's one of the problems I've seen with some companies that I'm either advising or, you know, on the board of or, you know, invested in is they, they sometimes don't have an appreciation for that industry experience. So I don't want to sound like I'm saying, you know, don't listen to the people who've been doing it, but I am saying don't be intimidated by it either. That makes a lot of sense. And, and that's super helpful. Another question I want to ask you about, and I, I think this is something you and I were discussing in the, the pre-interview and you touched on it a little bit there at the start, but could you just make the case for entrepreneurs to get out there and go build things that interact with the physical world? 
I think a lot of stuff happening today, it's, you know, it's all online and the world we live in, everything's online. But I personally find it especially exciting when I talk with CEOs and and entrepreneurs who are building real things that we can touch and and see. So could you just make the case for any founders listening in? How do we get them to build in the physical world? Yeah, I would say I would have them look at one of the world's most valuable companies, and that would be Apple. And if you look at what they produce, they make things that are used and touched by people who live in the real physical world. They use hardware. They violate all of the tenets of what is a good VC investment. Number one, they're in the physical world. That's a messy world. Most investors get nervous about that. They make hardware. Of course, no VCs like investing in hardware companies. They make multiple products that are seemingly somewhat related. Again, no one likes that. But they also have six hundred billion in the bank. <laughs> so I would say to people, what Apple as a company has done is very hard and very difficult, and they have decades of experience. So I don't want to be dismissive here and say that anybody who's you know thinking thoughtfully about starting a business. But I would say that being in the physical world and trying to solve the challenges associated with the real world or the physical world, not the virtual world or the cyber world, has its merits. And if you can solve those problems, you can create tremendous wealth and you can be wildly successful. They are very hard problems because the real world, the physical world, is in many ways a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more confusing, a little bit more challenging than some of the virtual worlds or cyber worlds that a lot of startups focus on. And it's a less constrained problem, the physical world. And as a consequence, people get they shy away from it. Well, that's too hard. And I would say to them, you know, if you really understand the problem and you understand the capabilities of modern technology, like deep learning, for example, you realize it's hard, but it's not impossible. You know, autonomous vehicles is going through a bit of a, a slump now because there was a big boom and a lot of my friends were in the space here in Pittsburgh. And now, it, you know, it's sort of lost a little bit of its luster. But if anybody thinks that autonomous vehicles aren't coming, they're mistaken. They're coming and they're coming with a vengeance. So the technology will work. Believe me, when it does, it's going to explode. It's going to take off. And so I would say to people, yes, these are challenging problems when you're trying to solve problems in the physical world with technology. But if you're persistent, you can have a tremendous impact. I love that. And last couple of questions here before we wrap Mark, what excites you most about the work you get to do every day here with Bloomfield? Well, I'll tell you what's most exciting is our team and getting really the feeling of creating a circumstance where, or the conditions where people can do things they didn't think they could otherwise do, that they get opportunity to take responsibility and solve problems they never imagined they might ever see or see for another 10 years in their career if they went a more traditional route. So giving young people the chance to give expression to their talents and ambitions. And for our team, you know, they're really jazzed about the idea they're trying to help feed the world as well. So give them that mission and give them the freedom and to make mistakes, make them feel that mistakes are part of learning and they can work miracles. So that's the most satisfying thing, no doubt. And final question here. Let's zoom out three to five years from today, what does the future of Bloomfield look like? Well, you know, it's our intention and it's our belief that everything that's on a farm that's moving 
will probably be soaking up data passively. And then that data in turn will then be crunched and inform the farmer as to what they need to do to improve that yield quality, consistency, and size. So what we imagine is our technology will ultimately be embedded in all those moving vehicles on arms, passively collecting data, crunching that data in real time as the vehicle's moving, and then informing actions of that vehicle and the implements on that vehicle, as well as the long-term plans of that farmer. So that's our dream. Nice. I love that. That's super exciting. Mark, we are over on time and I know you're on the East Coast, so I don't want to keep you any longer here. So we're going to have to wrap here. I'd I'd love to bring you on again and and dive deeper into some other topics. So we'll we'll have to save that for part two and and maybe a part three. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? They can go to Bloomfield.ai or they can go to Bloomfield, which is our uh, LinkedIn profile, and you can see us and how we do. We're also on Instagram as well. And again, it's bloomfieldai.ai. So follow us on on all those and uh, you'll see an exciting journey. Amazing. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and, and talk yeah. about what you're building over there. This has been a super fun conversation. It, Like I said, it hurt my brain a little bit at times trying to understand this technology and really just understand farming. So it's been a lot of fun. I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners did as well. So thanks so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Brett. Privilege being on your on your program. Thank you. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 